Osiris's production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Hey gang, welcome back to another edition of Dead to Me. This here is part one of a two-part set break where we'll consider dead-adjacent solo records and official live recordings that in many ways substitute for proper dead studio albums. We are thrilled to have Jonathan Hart of the legendary Broke Down podcast joining us for a bona fide Osiris Network crossover. Jonathan and I discuss three crucial studio albums that enriched the Dead's repertoire and pointed the band in ever more interesting directions. Jerry Garcia's debut, Garcia, Bob Weir's Ace, and Mickey Hart's Rolling Thunder. All three albums are compelling in their own right, but when you put them together, you get a sense of the Dead's trajectory up to the 1975 hiatus and beyond. The albums Garcia and Ace contain songs that became Jerry and Bobby's set staples going forward, and Mickey's highly experimental Rolling Thunder is a sandbox for his blossoming interest in world percussion and musical mysticism. And even though these aren't Grateful Dead records per se, members of the band play on all of them. Garcia features just Bill Kreutzmann, but Ace is essentially the new lineup of the band, including Keith and Donna Godshaw. And Rolling Thunder has Jerry, Bobby, and Phil alongside a who's who of the Bay Area and SoCal rock scenes. It was always a mystery to me why all these great songs and performances never made it to a proper Dead Studio record. But talking to Jonathan, I start to get it. The Dead were a band in permanent beta, which is to say they put a huge emphasis on research and development, from live sound reinforcement to recording technology to the music itself. In fact, you can see Ace, in particular, as workshopping a new version of the band that would come into its own in the incredible shows from 1971 and 1972. We'll be covering the official live releases from that period, Skull and Roses and Europe 72, in part two of our set break. And I'm thinking we'll definitely have Jonathan back to dig into Jerry's Reflections album from 1976, another quasi-dead effort that also birthed a batch of setlist staples. But that's a little bit down the road. Before we get uh, rolling, you should know that Nugs.net is the live music app featuring over 15,000 shows from your favorite bands, on-demand and ad-free. You can listen to a show from last night or from 40 years ago. You can download music to listen offline and create playlists to share with your friends. As live music fanatics, the folks at Nugs.net are offering our listeners a free 30-day trial. Listen free for 30 days and cancel anytime. Visit Nugs.net slash dead to me to get started. And I think it's time we do the same. Jonathan, let's do this. So, Jonathan, if we're looking at Garcia, Ace, 
and Rolling Thunder, the thing that sticks out for me is how each of these albums has contributed significantly to the Dead's repertoire, but none of them are official Grateful Dead albums. But if you look at Garcia and Ace in particular, you basically got the Jerry set and the Bobby set for the period of, you know, 71 to 74 at least. Pretty much, with some uh, straying far afield here and there particularly on the Garcia record. Totally. I actually like the experimentalism on Garcia's solo debut, maybe more than the avant-garde explorations the Grateful Dead made on earlier recordings. Uh, On Dead to Me, we've talked some smack about what becomes of the baby, (laughs) which is fine, but I think uh, here it's maybe better realized, uh, at least compared to early Dead. Yeah, it's certainly difficult, uh, depending on your perspective and one might have to alter their perspective to really hang with it. <laughs> yeah, could be. But um, yeah, I agree that there's some great success in some of this stuff. I think that it conveys nicely to uh, non-deadhead listeners. Yeah. Not all of them, but uh, some of them. Yeah, it's like Jerry does Stockhausen. <laughs> but even beyond the experimental stuff, there's a lot for non-deadheads here. Side one is just a killer batch of pop rock songs. And, you know, some of it might sound a little bit hippie, like sugary. But right out of the gate, you've got a batch of really strong tunes here. And I think they would appeal to a lot of indie rockers. Sure. I'm thinking about the stark Americana thing going on with a song like Loser. Just really great writing from Garcia and Hunter. And so many of them stayed in Grateful Dead sets over the decades, which makes me wonder, why didn't he save them for a dead record proper? I don't think I could answer that. It just might have been about the moment in time. Jerry was quoted as saying that he was trying to pay for a house when he went in and made this record. Yeah, him and MG. And he um, he went in with Bill Kreutzmann. They laid down basic tracks of drums and acoustic guitar, and then Jerry just went to town and somehow fashioned what, like with Deal, for example, it sounds like a fully realized Grateful Dead song. Yeah. Uh, it's got that shuffled chugle kind of beat slide it's they sings about playing cards it is as the kids say dope Go. 
Well, it is a little bit different than maybe what we've gotten used to from later performances, but it is still a tasty little number, and you can see why it became canon. That thing jumped right into the repertoire on in February of 1971, mm-hmm. which is going to be very familiar as we go through these records. A lot of these songs appeared right about the same time. Yeah, an incredibly productive period. Uh, it seems like Garcia and Hunter were just writing up a storm, and eventually these tunes hop the fence into the Grateful Dead world, and the band puts their stamp on it. By the time you get to 1972, particularly the European tour, these songs have really come into their own. They've just blossomed majestically. But it really has puzzled me for a long time how Garcia would put these songs on a solo album and not re-record them at the very least with The Grateful Dead at some point. And I could say the same thing about Bob Weir's Ace because that thing has a ton of tunes that persisted in sets over the years and really did help define the character of The Grateful Dead from that point forward. Yeah, I think Ace has only one song that never showed up on a Grateful Dead stage. And honestly, that's a pretty good choice. Um <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Walk in the Sunshine, is uh, it feels like a throwaway, and I guess yeah. everybody else agreed. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, everything else from top to bottom was really standout Bob Weir material throughout, even if it isn't, like, I, I don't think the Cassidy, I don't think the performance of Cassidy on that record is up to the standard, but even the band didn't really get around to really making it work on stage for a few more years. Yeah, I think sometimes the Bob songs take a little while to mature. He writes kind of angular guitar progressions, and they're harmonically challenging. Garcia's songs can get out there, but oftentimes they're a little bit more in pocket. Another thing that's interesting is that once you get Keith Godshaw playing piano on any of these, they really just light up. Yeah, Keith had been in for just a little while. Donna was there as well. Yeah. Uh, they recorded this. I think they started recording this in January of 72. So they were all new uh, just a couple months in. And it's funny playing in the band, which we should talk a little bit more about. We touch on Rolling Thunder. Yeah. Rolling Thunder, it seems, you know, it's not quite together. It's a groove they've been playing here and there since 1968. Right. When it was sometimes called the main 10. Yep. And then here it is fully realized and you can even hear what later 1972 would be a monster song and that became one of their most extreme improv vehicles absolutely and you know the other hilarious thing is they take it for a little walkabout on bob weir's ace that definitely anticipates what they would do in the future in a live setting but an actual official live album from around this time, Skull and Roses, has a version of playing in the band that doesn't include any far-out improvisatory stuff at all. So once again, we have a Grateful Dead mystery. Here's a live album where ostensibly you can go further out, but instead that space jazz ends up on Ace. Yeah, I would say it's arguably some of the best studio jamming that the Grateful Dead ever released, at least. Oh yeah, no doubt about it. Let's check it out.
know, it's really funny when I look back all those years when I didn't really love the dead. I think one of the points of resistance was Bob Weir. But if somebody had actually played me ace, I probably would have come around to him a lot earlier. I think, honestly, it was because I'd heard a live tape here and there with uh, Bob trying to harmonize with Donna on an off night. (laughs) And man, sometimes that stuff's a little rough. But listening to Ace, you know, you've got really strong songs, great songwriting, you know, wonderful performances, and they're super tight. But they also show you what the Grateful Dead is capable of in a live context in a way that I think eluded them on other studio recordings. But, you know, for me, Ace is about as good as it gets for Weir. Uh, He's in great vocal form. You know, there's a combination of factors. He sounds a little bit more experienced, a little bit more seasoned. He's got a lot of shows and recordings under his belt, so he's confident. But at the same time, it's still a younger Bob Weir, so he's capable of giving yearning performances. And sometimes that gets lost with the showman Bob Weir and he had to be a showman after Pigpen died somebody had to be but it is really nice to hear Bob come into his own on ace as a singer-songwriter it really is and it is probably one of the top studio records that you could call a Grateful Dead record I don't think Bobby ever came close to this outside of Grateful Dead uh, Mm -hmm. until his Blue Mountain record yeah from just a couple years ago um, which is a very different sort of record, mm-hmm. of course, but it's quite good. For sure. But yeah, this is also the blossoming or debut of the uh, Weir-Barlow collaborations. Yeah. So we get Black-Throated Wind mm-hmm. and Mexicali Blues, which is inarguably problematic. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. But, um, it's it's a nice little rocker, albeit basically a body polka. <laughs> that is a perfect description for it. You know, it seems that the Weir and Barlow collaboration was producing some pretty epic songs right from the outset. Absolutely. And it seemed to unlock something in Bobby's songwriting that uh, was maybe more progressive, I guess. And that served as a vehicle, I think, for Barlow's sometimes long-winded investigations of sex and the human psyche. Coupled with the Great American West and the mythology thereof. Yeah, outriding the plains with Dick Cheney. Yeah. And speaking of the ranch life, Mickey Hart was knee-deep in it while he was recording a little record that came to be known as Rolling Thunder. And it was a tricky time for Mickey because he wasn't in the Grateful Dead anymore. His dad had been hired to mine the books for the band, but then ran off with all their money. So Mickey basically took a little sabbatical. And during that time, he worked on this record, which, of course, in true Grateful Dead fashion, features several members of his former band. Yeah, Mickey put himself into a self-imposed exile at this time. Mm -hmm. But they were all still very connected. And it did give Mickey an opportunity to stretch out a bit and indulge his interests in world music, for example. And the application of those interests starts to get formulated on Rolling Thunder. And of course, when he rejoined the Grateful Dead, he would bring that Mickey flavor back to the band. Yes, yeah, some might argue that wasn't um, the turn they hoped for, <laughs> but it's the turn we got. And uh, I think it, I think we've got several records to demonstrate that he tapped into something quite nicely. And here, I mean, we open with the invocation from Rolling Thunder, the Native American chief who was a friend of the group at the time. And they get right into it with this weird take on the main 10. Right. Which is, I think weird is the best word for it. It moves through a couple different modes before they sing it. And uh, the riff, the melody from the opening riff with percussion fascinating it's fascinating listen and to hear how quickly it changed 
by the time they the Grateful Dead took it on, you know, on Bob Weir's album. <laughs> yeah, and beyond, you know, when the dead got their melting mitts on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, since we played the other embryonic version of playing in the band, let's go all the way back to the main 10 as it appears on Mickey Hart's solo album, Rolling Thunder. Thank you. 
Yeah, so like you said, that takes a little while to find its footing, and I think purposefully so. It's definitely an experimental song, and I like that it connects the Dead's emerging repertoire with their more psychedelic, amorphous leanings coming out of Oxymox, Soa, and Anthem of the Sun. And I think that without the Mickey Hart solo album, Rolling Thunder, that transition might be a little less obvious. Of course, playing in the band continues to be pretty out there, and it's so strange that these weird jams would be nestled in that song. I don't know. If you're starting weird, where else do you go? (laughs) Ever weirder still. (laughs) I want to go back to Garcia, the solo album, for a minute because I have this sense that this is where Jerry really comes into his own as a singer of songs, as a stylist, as a great vocal interpreter of material, his own material or other people's material. In this case, uh, a handful of just absolutely resplendent Hunter Garcia compositions. And it's interesting because in previous episodes of Dead to Me, we've looked at the early Grateful Dead psychedelic records. And And until you get to American Beauty and Working Man's Dead, there's seemingly some trepidation about what to do with their vocals. Uh, That's not the case here. Garcia sounds relaxed and confident and really able to deliver these songs. And of course, he would continue to refine them and experiment with the melodies as they evolved in live performance. But it's really powerful to hear Jerry step up and sing on his debut solo album. I'm thinking in particular of Birdsong, which Hunter wrote in tribute to their late friend, Janis Joplin. And there are a lot of tender and even searing performances of Birdsong, but this is where it all starts. I agree. I think also, you know, this Bird song, it should have been the single. Yeah. There were a couple singles from this record that didn't they didn't really do too well, but this is a killer track. It it does peter out at the end, but it hits really hard and fast and kind of nails the thing that this song does quite beautifully. And yeah, he sings it really nice. Bird song debuted in seventy one, early seventy one, and mm-hmm. then disappeared after that summer, only to come back the following year, about eleven months later, and it was a beast. An Mm -hmm. absolute improvisatory Mm -hmm. beast. By uh, August of 72, they played what I think is one of the best versions ever, which is not to say they didn't do great things with it after. They continued to do that through basically the rest of their career, Mm -hmm. including acoustic versions in 1980 that jammed out. Yeah, Um, It was, uh, this was the song that gave us what Darkstar could have given us, but when they weren't even playing Darkstar. So some (laughs) some fans called it uh, Birdstar. Just right. Tip right. their hat to that that right. flavor. But yeah, man, the Vanita Oregon 72 version of this. Yes, that's the one I'm specifically referring to. I mean, it is a multi-dimensional bird song. Yeah, and and that break, they break it all the way down, mm-hmm. pause for a beat, and they hit back in just with that swinging return that I can hear in my head right now as I speak of it. Yeah, it's so cool. The the song started off as an elegy, but it's transformed later into something more celestial. A celebration, maybe. Yeah, but you know, you got to start somewhere. So let's check out where it all began for Birdsong from Garcia's solo debut.
hard not to talk about the Garcia record. So many good songs, you know. We haven't even really gotten into Sugary. I agree with your assessment of Sugary. It might sound a little hippy-dippy, but again, Jerry's done a really fine job of capturing kind of exactly how the Grateful Dead would always do this song. Yeah, it's got that sway. And, you know, no matter what permutation, there's always something connecting Sugary to its R&B rock and soul roots. It really is an old school rock and roll lullaby. Yep. I mean, sometimes it can feel a little flaccid, a little syrupy, but it's got good bones and you can see why it stayed in the sets like forever. Yeah, without a doubt. But let's talk about some of the weird songs, man. All right. <laughs> Like, what is your favorite on side two of the weird ones? You know, I 
love the opening sequence. There's three songs, Late for Supper, Spider God, that's God, G-A-W-D, and Eep Hour, Yeah, which we hear those actually in the animated sequence of the Grateful Dead movie. Yeah, that's right. But it, it gets fairly weird. There's just this free improv, a little music concrete or concrete or however the French might say it. And then <laughs> by the time Eep Hour comes on, there's this really pleasant, composition of piano we're playing and yeah all from garcia again let me re- remind everyone other than the drums yeah it's like you fell into a john cage album or something right but you know it's musical enough that by the time you get to the end of the record and something like the wheel it doesn't really feel awkward it feels like a natural flow right well he does tuck to lay me down in the middle there mm, yeah which is a charming and pretty song that also became a dead staple although it didn't really truly get its due uh the pedal steel on this version is really nice but it Mm -hmm. kind of came in and out of the rotation but it didn't really it didn't last you know got i think at most maybe 10 appearances in 73 or right nine and 88 something you know just a handful uh, for a few years Uh, but a gorgeous little tune yeah and where it is resurrected it's always really meaningful uh particularly later life garcia there's that frailty in his voice that sometimes gives a song like to lay me down a little bit of an extra depth yeah late 80s to lay me down is the kind of thing that's going to make you pause and listen very closely yeah even on the garcia solo album it's just a really beautiful song and of course everything wraps up with the wheel which in my view contains some of hunter's greatest lyrics it's kind of a nutshell for his entire cosmology it's just chock-a-block with metaphors and sort of serves as a parable for the agonies and ecstasies of the human experience you know if the thunder don't get you the lightning will it kind of has a religious bent to me i think it's some of his more overt Uh, references to uh, actual religions and philosophies, if you will. Yeah, there's almost like a Job-like quality to some of the stuff happening in that song. But again, with Hunter, he always seems to seek balance. He's presenting like all sides of a thing. And it's a little bit of a mystery how he manages to funnel that into a rock and roll song. But once again, he manages to do it with aplomb. And Jerry does such an amazing job of transforming into sound yeah and with songs as beautiful as the ones that appear on garcia it's real easy to overlook ace which we're also talking about here in our set break episode and i would say very much the same thing for bob's contributions uh all of the songs on ace are just terrific and they really did enrich the grateful dead experience once they started showing up in the band set list of course the studio recordings sound like a party too when Bobby went in to make Ace, he basically knew this was going to happen. He booked some studio time, had some songs, and everybody said, oh, well, you need a guitar player? <laughs> Do you need a bass player? Right. And sure enough, the entire band was there. So we had, I think, Dave Torbert plays bass on a little bit of it. Yeah, otherwise a Grateful Dead record. Totally. So let's let Bobby Weir play us out with a little bit of Cassidy from his solo album Ace. And once again, Jonathan, it's great to have you on Dead to Me. Yeah, I think we've really, uh, we've covered it. Well, your depth of knowledge sure is something and we are going to have you back on the show for sure. But for now, let's give Mr. Weir the final word. Street. I can tell by the mark he left you were in his dream. 
That'll do it for this episode of Dead to Me. Big thanks to Jonathan Hart of Broke Down Podcast for joining. I promise I'll talk less on the next visit. I was just too excited that Jonathan was here. And stay tuned for part two of our set break where we will dig into the live album Skull and Roses and Europe 72. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time. Yeah.